Are you ready to supercharge your music career? You've come to the right place. This is the Real Musicians Don't Starve podcast. The only show where you will learn firsthand how musicians just like you have turned their passions into highly successful long-term careers. I'm your host, Michael Elsner, and I'm so happy to have you with us today. Now, let's dive into this episode. Welcome to today's episode. I'm so excited to be here with my good buddy, Kevin Antunes. And Kevin has had an unbelievable career as a music director and performer. He's currently the music director for Madonna. He's also been the music designer for Michael Jackson's One, as well as Michael Jackson's Immortal World Tour. And those are both Cirque du Soleil shows. Uh, He's also worked with... um, Artists including Rihanna, uh, Justin Timberlake, NSYNC, Britney Spears. Uh, he's, you've seen him on the Super Bowl halftime show back in 2012. Uh, and he's just worked with so many people. It's, it's, uh, we'd probably spend the next hour going down your list of credits. But, uh, but we'll, we'll skip that. And, and Kevin, I just want to welcome you to the show. And, and so thankful that you're here to share your, your wealth of knowledge and experience with us. Thank you for having me, Michael. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on today. Awesome. Well, you know, like I said, you've had an amazing career, uh, worked with so many artists uh, for so many years. And I think everyone could consider that massively successful. You know? A lot of us dream of having just a career, you know, being a full time musician. But to be able to work with so many, you know, A-list artists, that's that's really a, a dream for so many. But I'm curious to know how you look at success when it comes to having a career in the music industry. It's a good question. I, I look at it as a steady narrative. I never look at it as they're just like, oh, wow, I worked with that one and this was incredible. And blah. I don't really see it that way. I see it as like it's it's linear and it's not. I'm following my career on this timeline. And along the way, I'm trying to spread as much information to everybody around me and learn as much that I can. And I'm constantly looking for artists that challenge my skill set and make me grow as a person so it's not just oh i'm gonna go take this job because you know they're paying this amount of money uh most of the time it's like i want to find out about a little bit about the artist what their what their whole thing is what inspires them what team they have around them and what people can i bring to ornament that team and make it better so those are the things that i look for and that's how i view success is um the continuous interpretation of art. Now, you know, one of the things I think is actually really amazing about your particular situation is that you don't live in a, a major music city. You know, you're not in New York or, or Los Angeles or anything like that. You've been uh, outside of Orlando for uh, quite some time. Yes, I've been parked here for 21 years now. And that happened because I think in 90, hmm, in 98, I started working with NSYNC, and I came down here to Orlando. Their manager, Johnny Wright, good friend of mine since New Kids on the Block, right? Knew him for, at that time, I think, since 88, you know? So, good friend. We worked on Snap together. You know, I got the power. Um, he said, <laughs> I got this group, right? He was already on tour with Backstreet Boys. He said, I got this other group. They're coming up. They're called NSYNC. They're going to be incredible. So, I came down here to Orlando to meet him, and then, you know, fast forward I end up working for him and we were spending so much time here in Orlando and at the time my daughter was just born and then I started working with Brittany down here in Orlando 
and it just looked like a good place to raise a family because we were living in the New York area because I'd finished working for Atlantic Records at the time when I took the NSYNC job. And I thought, you know what? If I come down to Orlando, I'll be able to get more property, better lifestyle, better schools. That was the big one, you know? And that was it. I can't, cost of living was low, no state income tax. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I didn't know that you moved there in 98. I moved to uh, Orlando in 97. And then oh, I actually, you? I actually left in in November of '98 and moved to Nashville. Yeah. Well, that's funny. I started with the guys in '98, but I didn't move here until 2001. That's what okay. it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I I loved living down there. I still think that was one of the the uh, best years of my life was was living uh, in in Orlando. And uh, and I for just a loved... minute, it was a music town. Yeah, and it, there was so much to do. You know, especially in the, in the late 90s when I was living there, there was so much to do. And I remember one of the very first things I did when I moved there from New York was uh, I got uh, my my season pass to Disney. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had I had that. Recently, we got rid of it. But the one that my kids loved is the season pass to Universal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now you have That's Harry, what all Harry, the teenagers do. Yeah, Harry Potter, you know? Harry Potter land over there. So, you know... Uh, what would you say have been uh, some of the strategies that you've implemented throughout your career to, um, you know, stay consistent and and uh, stay focused? You know, especially you know, working from artist to artist to artist, um, you know, so that you're you know constantly, um, uh, you know, you, you know, you're focused. And of course, you know, there's always the re- the rejection that we get too. You know, so how how do you stay focused during those times that that also we have we have rejections where we don't land the gigs or or whatnot. Yeah, for me, staying focused on the job at hand, it's it's really about knowing the artist that you're working with and trying to do your best to maintain their original artistic intent from what they did in the studio and from what they did in their, their previous concerts prior to me getting involved, because I'm also the keyboard player as well as musical director. So trying to make sure that those things are first and foremost in my mind, that is where I spend all my time because I have my thoughts on music, things that I love, my personal preference set of how I would put a show together. But if it doesn't match up with what that artist is, I always I always take the lead from the artist because it's about them. It's not I'm there to serve their artistic needs and at the, at the same time try to find some common ground so I can express myself too because I'm an artist as well. But right. it'll never, you know, outshine what they want. So that's one. The other thing is time management, because there was a there was a moment where when I was working for NSYNC and seemed like everybody started calling all at the same time, like from Britney to like Nick Lachey to Ciara, like when she first started with goodies and all that. That was me that put all the bands together, Janet Jackson. So all these things were happening at the same time. So I had to really pay attention to time management, meaning if I'm working with, say, artist A, but during a day off, I know I have all that free time, I'm going to schedule myself in my calendar so I see it. All right, work on this particular artist so that I can send out a dat tape or the audio files to them. And then the next day, I know I have sound check later in the afternoon, so I have like a window of like four hours where I can work on something else. So I was trying to multitask like a champ. So time management and multitasking was huge. The other thing is really... To, to be respectful and be kind of all of those that you're working with and all of those around you. Because 
I would never want the artists that I was working with at the time to think they weren't my main thing, you know, that I was like trying to like really work three or four or five different jobs and theirs was suffering. As long as the the main artist that you're with, that you're really blowing it out the water with them, that's how you earn the time to go ahead and invest it elsewhere. The other thing is, is I'm a control freak. I like to do everything by myself. I've... I started off just a keyboard player and I learned how to program early in my career because we couldn't, in the band I was in, we couldn't afford a, you know, a, a computer programmer to do all the sequencing and stuff. So I started doing that. And it's like everything along the way, I pick up these different skill sets because either the people I'm working with don't have that in their camp or they're not going to outsource it and pay for it. So I just kind of gravitate towards it and figure it out. Yeah. And a lot of things have changed. Just in 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 music and in production and whatnot, just in, in the last twenty years, obviously. So so you've obviously taken a lot of initiative to, you know, learn and educate yourself, you know, on those changes, so that you could you know program and become a, a valuable service to everyone that you're working with, right? So uh, aside from like hopping on YouTube, <laughs> right, and and learning learning stuff on on YouTube with, with YouTube tutorials, how? How are you constantly educating yourself and and you know growing and and learning all the all the new gear, all the new uh, you know plugins? Obviously, you know you've done a lot of production work uh, with the Cirque du Soleil you know um, shows. How how did you learn all that stuff uh, while you you know at the same time were were working with all these different artists? Was that just a uh, you know, getting well, on YouTube or were you were you taking reading? Well, the thing is, is stories? if you're if you're a nerd, a tech nerd, and a tech geek. You know, these kind of things you just like to look into. Like once Isodope came out, I was all about it. I love everything that they do. Love all the different plugins that they've created. Native Instruments, once they came out with their whole suite of things, I just fell in, you know, just like jumping in a swimming pool. And I just would spend hours upon hours trying to figure it out. And I'm not one to read the manual first. I will, the one thing I'll read manuals for is to learn how to save and back up. After that, I'll just go through and just find my way through and then I'll go to the manuals if I need it. So once I start looking into different pieces of software, cause constantly I'm always listening to music. And the thing that I find now that's a challenge for musicians today, music's changed so much where a lot of the things that we hear aren't things that you can just play can't just go out and play some of these patches because they're either side chained or they've got five different effects on top of it you're not going to find it in a keyboard you won't because everything's treat overly treated or it's stutter edited so you know trying to figure out ways to do that live now it's like a huge challenge it's not as simple as oh yeah let me just get a, a drummer a bass player a guitar player a keyboardist a few background singers we're good no, you got to think outside the box now because the original sound sources that the artists are using are so varied and are so deeply intricate that you have to make make it so that when you recreate these songs live, um, they got to sound like the record. You can't sound like a wedding band. You got to and there's some good wedding bands out there. No diss to them, but they don't have access to the original sound files that I do. So I can actually take these things, make the synth and drum patches sound just like their records and then rearrange the arrangement for a live performance. So a lot of the things I do now is if if I can't get in touch with um, the, uh, most of the time I have the multi-tracks, but if I can't get in touch with the original producers, I'll make sure that I 
get in touch with the original producers. I want to know what patches they used, what drum programming they used. They don't have to give me their original sequence because I have the multi-tracks. Just tell me what patches you had because it benefits the artist and it'll keep their career with that particular artist in the good grace. Because I'll go back to the artist and say, hey, I talked to producer such and such. Look what they did. They sent me your vocal plug-in, uh, your, your vocal chain that you used on that record. So I know with certain artists that I work with, every song that they do, they want that vocal sound for that song. You can't just put a reverb on me. No, not just a delay. No, I want everything that was on that vocal so I sound like that song. So that's where we start. And then we subtract or add or, you know, attenuate for it. I love the fact that you actually talked about getting on the phone with, with the producers and how you will get the actual files. Uh, because just the, the underlying point of that is so important of just getting on the phone with people. Uh, you know, I have people who are always reaching out to me because of, of the program and stuff like that and asking me questions about even stuff with like their PRO and, you know, ASCAP or BMI or whatever they're with. And, and I always have to respond and go, I, I don't work for those companies. I have no idea. You're a member. Why don't you call them? And, and there's always that shock of, oh, I can call them? Yes, you should, you should <laughs> call them. If you have a question with anything, you should get on the phone. And I feel that at least in my world with a lot of the musicians that 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 i i talk to on a consistent basis a lot of them just don't get on the phone with people uh you know and i always i always share the story of how when i switched from ascap to bmi um i i was i was you know having a bit of an issue with it like a lot of people do and instead of you know just going and you know trying to figure it out or or uh, you know maybe calling the the receptionist at the local uh uh you know office I actually called the president of BMI. Uh, I it wasn't. I had to get his number. It was a process to get his number, but I actually called him directly, Michael O'Neill. I got him on the phone, and after I got the phone with him, about forty-five minutes later, the vice president called me, and he's the one who handled the whole process for me. But it's it's. I'm always surprised when people are shocked by that. Oh, you called him? Yes. Everyone's everyone's reachable. You just get on the phone and you call them and you and you get the information that you need. A because you're a member of the organization, or in your case, because you're the music director for the artist that that producer produced. Yeah, and it it inevitably it'll do the producer good to provide these pieces of information because it makes their song sound better live, and it keeps them, like I said earlier, you know, on in that good grace with the artist. Maybe you don't work with that artist again, but if you go work with another artist. They talk. Artists speak to each other. You may get a good referral. Um, the other thing that I noticed, too, is like I was saying about these different sound sources, there's a lot of phrase playing that I do nowadays. Like in my okay. latest rig, I had um, a couple of Native Instruments uh, machinists, the drum machines, yeah, yeah. set up. And I would sample phrases because they're things that like are multi-layered, things that you can't, you can't play them because they're a sound effect with a keyboard, with effects, with whatever. So... I started dropping them on the pads while I'm playing keyboards with the other hand so I can, you know, do it. And it's it was fun to play that way. It's just oh, yeah. a different it's a different approach, you know, and it you just got to change with the times. Yeah, that's kind of using modern technology, you know, to uh, to your advantage. So so we've we've talked about, you know, obviously the, the skill set is always an, an understood aspect. You know, you, you, you can't have a a great career unless you've developed the skill set and you've taken the time. Uh, you've obviously, you know, taken the initiative with, with your actions, um, you know, 
So I'd love to talk to you about mindset uh, and how you approach uh, or how you've approached your whole career uh, and, and the mindset that you've had when you've when you've approached it. Um, you know, a lot of uh, people always think, well, I, I can't do that, you know, or that opportunity is not going to come to me or they have the I can't, you know, uh, approach. And I'd, I'd love to get your perspective of how you've approached it from the beginning and how you looked at building a career from your mindset, mindset per- perspective. It's funny. Um, I, I look at it totally different and it's old for me. It's not something that's new. It's when I was a kid and you said something earlier when we were talking, um, you said that you'd sit on your beanbag and you'd play your guitar because you had this time. And now with the technology, you find it hard to do that uh, because there's this, there's different social media apps, there's notifications, there's emails, there's this and that, right? So when I first learned how to play, I was not, I didn't have piano lessons. I had a little Casio CZ 101 and all I wanted to do was learn the music of my father's band, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, so I could play soundcheck with them. That was <laughs> the goal, right? So yeah. I, that's how I learned how to play rock and roll from Bobby Katoya, who's in their band. And um, that's how I got my first dose of music and the love for it. So then out of high school, when I went to college, uh, I had to take the piano test. So you can, because you have to have lessons when you're a music major. And the three piano teachers there, uh, one of them was amazing, really, just really good person. The other two were uh, so diehard classical that I suppose anything that I would have played, and just keeping it real, when I walked through the door, I think I just didn't fit the, the image that they had for what their music major was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I started playing, um, <laughs> I think I was playing something like a something like that and they stopped me and they said what is your left hand doing that was the first question they asked me and very honestly I said it's playing the bass huh. what do you think it's doing <laughs> you know they expected me to you know to do that and ever since that day and then that whole two years at that school it was he's just not good enough he just never had lessons. He's always going to struggle. And in my head, it was like, really? See, because in my world, I'm looking at my father's band. They just did, you know, solid gold and they're uh, number six or seven on the Billboard Top 100. So I'm not really connecting with what you're saying that I'm not going to be able to make it because I've got proof that it can work that way because the guy that taught me, that's how he learned. So I just kept at it and I said, you know, anything that they put in front of me, I'll learn any classical piece. I'll have to break it down into its smaller components so that I can learn it. Cause I didn't, I never learned the right fingerings or any of that, but for the pieces they gave me, I had to learn them that way so that I could execute that way. And that's something that I do even to this day. If I have to learn, you know, music licensing, I'm going to go to one of the best and I'm going <laughs> to check out how they do it. And then I'm going to learn that pattern. I'm going to see what it is. So something that I learned at Northeastern University as well, when I start programming, putting concerts together, taking something that's large, breaking it into subsections and then into smaller components and then working out those components, but also being able to multitask those components at the same time. So I got pretty good at that part. 
You know, there was that feeling of the imposter syndrome when I was back at college, and I try to shake it because there's so many amazing players out there that, like, play jazz or classical or or come from the church, like gospel, and mm-hmm. like, they kill it. Yeah. I do not play like that. I play very, I don't know, I just play what I have to play, you know, and I'll learn what I have to learn, But um, and I've got my own feel, but that feeling was always there that, you know, he's just not good enough. So I take that with me everywhere I go to prove everybody wrong. And I will outwork everybody. You'll see me in that rehearsal studio from 11 a.m. till 3, 4, 5. And I will do that when we're working with Madonna six days a week for three months during our rehearsal period. And my mindset during that whole time is to keep the room really open and chill and so that every musician and singer and the artist can internalize what it is that we're doing. And I'm good at identifying everybody's musical superpowers. So if you were in the room with me and I was listening to you play when we're in between stuff, I go, oh, that's what Michael likes to play. Cool. I'll find a place in the show to put that because if I put that in the show somewhere, now I got you. You feel like you have some sort of connection to the show and you're going to be a beast. You're not just playing because you're getting a check. So I'll do that in a lot of different places to keep people like, damn, my stuff is in the show. Something that I can do is in here. I think it's a good way to to get musicians and vocalists and, you know, even the audio guys. I do that with them, too, a technique that they may use. So I try to keep everybody involved and, you know, scheduling is always tough, but that's the mindset is there's this hard headedness and this determination and grit where once we start, you know, you're going to have to kill me to make me stop. Hey, I just want to jump in here for a second and let you know that if any of your goals over the next year include recording and releasing a new album, generating placements of your songs on TV shows and films, or just building a fan base that will sustain your music career, I want to invite you to my special workshop, Real Musicians Don't Starve. Now in this workshop, we're going to focus on the three keys that are essential to your success. And you're going to walk away with an extremely powerful strategy that allows you to create your own wow factor. And this gives you the power to attract musical opportunities to you instead of constantly struggling and chasing after them. Now you can check out this workshop for free at realmusiciansdontstarve.com slash workshop. And once again, that's realmusiciansdontstarve.com slash workshop. Now back to the podcast. So I totally resonate with that. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't go to music school, um, but I, I, so I didn't have the, that education, uh, you know, in, in my background. And, and uh, I think it, it was, it was beneficial to me to, to some degree. Um, but, but even more so, I think that, that the attitude like, like what you have of like, no, I'm, I'm hard headed. I'm going to make this happen regardless of what you think. I think that is probably the most important thing regardless of if it's music or, or any type of career that you're having, because that is ultimately what's going to inspire you to put in that amount of work. And, you know, oftentimes you see people, I've, I've met so many unbelievably talented musicians as, as I know you have throughout your career. Um, but I've, I've met so many unbelievably talented, naturally gifted musicians who walked away from music because it got a little hard for them. And yet, a lot of times the ones who became successful, at least the, 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 my, the friends that I know who, who became successful, they're not the most naturally gifted people. They're the ones who had the work ethic. 
and and stepping outside of music, I think you you can look at like uh, like uh, everyone always talks about him, so I hate to bring him up again, but you have like like it's like the Tom Brady situation, right? He was drafted like what. 199th or something like that. I mean, I'm from Massachusetts, so yeah, I've got yeah. nothing bad to say about Tom Brady. Uh, of course, but but he was he was an an overlooked quarterback who was yeah. going to be a backup quarterback for for Drew Bledsoe, right? But arguably, you know, the best quarterback uh, in in history, uh, especially statistics wise, as far as Super Bowls go, right? But at the same point. You know, here's a guy who who got there because he worked so diligently. And I I heard him actually, uh, I read a quote that he had. I forgot it, what it is off the top of my head, but paraphrasing it, he, he, he basically says that. He goes, a lot of times the people who are naturally gifted don't put in the amount of work that the rest of us, you know, who aren't naturally gifted do. And, uh, and that's the reason why that will always trump, you know, that work ethic will always trump the natural ability. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And I, I try to make sure that I've had different musician lineups over the years. And when I, I think it's important as a musical director that you can identify the two, because the ones that are naturally did, everything is so effortless. And I find that when we're in a rehearsal, those are the people that tend to get bored really quick in rehearsal. So I have to find a way to keep them energized and, and in the moment because they're not ones that really want to repeat things all the yeah. time. Yeah. And it's important in that line of work when you're doing concerts that there's a frame once you put the show together, everybody has to play within that frame. You know, so it's like if you're going to a Broadway show, you're going to see the same show night after night after night. There's minor things that change, but it has to be performed the same way. Mm-hmm. So I try to make sure that everybody's on on board with that. Now, here, here's here's a, a question that I just always love to ask, uh, and this is going to go go all the way back in time. If you could go and have coffee with yourself at 20 years old, sit across the table, maybe at a diner or something like that, and, and you could give yourself two pieces of advice at 20 years old that you would do differently in your career now, what would they be? Okay, I got you. Two things, right? Yeah. I was when I was twenty, it was nineteen ninety, I was on the Magic Summit Tour with the new kids on the block. Right? The business okay. manager, his name was um Bob Wolf. He's the very first sports attorney. So like he he helped uh on the movie Jerry Maguire. They yeah. named a character after him. Uh I think they called the guy Dick Fox, but okay. named after Bob Wolf. But so Bob helped the new kids manage their money. And you never heard any stories about the new kids being broke. That's because a couple of those guys invested in Microsoft back then. So that's first. I would have invested some of my personal money in Microsoft the way they did. The <laughs> second thing I would tell myself is I should have learned golf back then when I was 20 instead of waiting until I was like, you know, uh, 33, 34. I should have learned when I was 20. Because it's an amazing game. It teaches you so much about yourself and all of, all the others around you. But as far as my career is concerned, I would never go back and change anything. Because everything that I've done that I failed at, that was a struggle, all of those things taught me something integral about myself or about my skill set. And it defines who I am today. The good, the bad, the indifferent. So those things I wouldn't change because they've worked for me. Right. 
I think I think just just the advice on on thinking about investing alone is really uh, potent, you know, uh, because a lot of times you know we don't start thinking about investing until we're a bit older. But the reality is, if we could have started thinking about that when we were in our twenties, oh my God, and it's incredible. We, yeah, just the just the concept of compound interest. Just just imagine if we were twenty on uh, and on a tour like that. If you just took like 20 grand, if you saved for a year and just had 20 grand set aside and you went and you bought a small house that you didn't want to live in, that you rented out to somebody and just left it, yeah. just that yeah. would have been great. Yeah. Did but I do that? Oh, no, no, no. I blew all that, buddy. I was just yeah. spending like a stupid 20-year-old. I was actually talking to uh, my neighbor who teaches finance at a, at a high school. And, uh, and, um, and he said, he goes, I never have to... Um, you know, fight for their attention because all these kids want to learn about money. And I thought that was such an interesting perspective because I didn't learn finance back in high school, you know, but just his attitude of like, I, I have a gr easy job because I'm never arguing with them. I talk about money in class and they're always paying attention. So that's, that's incredible. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, a lot of us didn't have uh, schools that taught any of that stuff and in investing and whatnot. That would have no, been no, that, but that's that's an important part of my job as well now. That when I have younger musicians and performers that I'm around, when we're out having coffee or at dinner, I will bring these things up and I will drop these nuggets of wisdom on them about how simple it is to just set some money aside so that they can have a financially healthy life. Because touring, you know, barring COVID aside, uh, touring is just challenging itself to sustain a career doing it and you get these heavy influxes of money and then it's quiet then you get money then it's quiet so you have to learn how to balance that money you just can't go running louis vuitton it's like oh my god i'm like look at me it looks like louis vuitton threw up all over me i've got everything <laughs> but now you don't have anything in in the bank you know you have to you have to like watch what you do money is something that you have to pay attention to if you want to be on tour yeah, and, and there's there's the fact that that a lot of stuff with the business as a whole is inconsistent, you know. E even the same thing with royalties, you know. You get a royalty check, oftentimes for you know a good chunk of change, and then you get nothing for a while. Then you get a royalty check, and and uh, you know you have to learn how to handle that. And and that the business side is something that that a lot of musicians. I always talk about about the business to musicians as often as I can, because when you understand not only the business of music but just really the business of living, uh, it it it, uh, it makes things a lot easier for you because then you're able to take that that money like the touring money and and make it last and and put it into you know good long term investments. And actually, that's a perfect lead in to a manifesto that I have uh, that I, I always read uh, in every episode, and that is uh, real musicians are business owners. And our business is music. Now, a business is simply an organization where value is provided in order to make a profit. And unlike starving musicians who operate with a mindset of scarcity and fear, as success-driven musicians, we operate with a mindset of abundance, confidence, and service. We are doers, we are dreamers, we are creators, and we are achievers. We know that our true value is determined by how many people we serve and how well we serve them, because our truth is, Real musicians don't starve. I agree. Yeah. I, I uh, you know, focusing in on the business and focusing in on how you handle, uh, you know, cash and, uh, and just how you treat your business as far as being a service to people as, as opposed to having it be an 
being an ego-driven thing, uh, really I have I, found is the difference between those who are able to do music on a consistent basis and make a good living at it and those who end up struggling and trying to do music but, but never get anywhere with it. So, Yeah, I find that when I look at all of that, I find that there's a word that I hear. I hear it a lot on Clubhouse, um, networking, right? Yeah. That word, it, it's it's never sat right with me. I'm not mad at it, but to me, it's always about good quality sound relationships, right? Yeah. Because networking to me is, I got somebody's business card. Uh, I met somebody, they gave me their card. Look, I got a card, it's shiny. <laughs> Great. You know, a relationship like Motu Digital Performer, I know that on a Sunday night at like 9 p.m., if a computer crashes and I get all these problems, there's a number that I can call because I've earned that relationship with these guys where I will have somebody get on the phone and talk me through whatever's going wrong because they know that in the music business, these things, they're not limited to Monday to Friday. They can happen at any moment. And I have that relationship with a lot of companies that I've built their trust over the years. I've had them come to my shows during soundcheck so they can see the intricacies of my my rig that's uh, on stage and off and kept them involved and you know was of service of them if they if they needed me to like shout them out somewhere of course i'm going to do that so that's just endorsers but as well as like record company people or live nation and aeg it's the same kind of thing i've built up relationships with all these different businesses and people not because I was trying to network, but because I genuinely enjoy meeting people and, and talking to people and learning about what what brought them to where they are. If you do that, all of a sudden you notice that you can really count on these relationships in the future because it's not just something just defined by, oh, I got this card because I met this person at this conference. That's cool, but it's not the same. It's, it's, it's being more authentic as opposed to approaching... Uh, connecting with others with the expectation that, oh, if I connect with this person, they'll potentially do something for me. Yeah. And, and it, I was going to say, the other thing is, is I've noticed over the years, like take Nam for example, the, the mindset when I go there and I look around the room is all the younger musicians, for the most part, are thinking, what can I get? Yeah. Instead of what can I offer? Yeah. That's big. I think you pretty much summed it up perfectly because it, it, it like the whole every everything every aspect of what we do in music is a service because if we want to do it professionally there's always going to be a boss somewhere that we're working for in some capacity and even if even if you are the performer if you are the madonna in that case the reality is that your bosses or or the people that you're serving should probably approach it that from that perspective the people that you're serving are the people that are showing up and paying money to show up at the at the at the concert, right? You're providing a service. She's always the boss. She would never see it that way. <laughs> she might not see it that way. But the reality is that she's she a tells the crowd every night, "I'm the boss of you." <laughs> she's the best. <laughs> That's funny. And they, and they love it though. They love it. They like, oh my god, Madonna, you're the boss. Like, Yo, it's it's hilarious. She's got such a great relationship with her fans. They got like this joke that it's cool. Well, but but the but the perspective though is is that still you know, like like they're paying the money to come to come see you. They're they're coming to see some type of entertainment and a show, 
right? So they're they're getting mm-hmm. value for that money. So maybe maybe a better way to state it is is they're trading value for the money, right? So when you the way I see it, that somebody you're, you're, said something the other day, and I I kind of I like this. Uh, a ticket is a contract with the artist. I love oh, that. Wow. You know, because it's an agreement that I'm going to put some money, I'm going to invest money into this, and what I'm going to get is an experience that's unforgettable. And it's our job as artists and performers to deliver on that contract. That's a perfect perspective. Kind of cool way of looking at it, right? That's a complete, yeah, mind shift, but that's a perfect way of looking at it yeah like i added my own stuff to that but i i kind of picked up the piece about it being a contract and i was like huh let me give that one a thing it's interesting that's brilliant awesome well kevin i uh i appreciate you uh coming and sharing uh you know your uh, experience and uh, your perspective of, of things i know it's been uh extremely valuable for for those listening and um like i said at the beginning you've just had an unbelievable career uh, with uh, so much experience uh, playing at such a high level with so many different artists uh, for such a long, long time that uh, it's really a privilege to be able to chat with you. Thank you. And, and thank you again, because I went through your course. I went through every segment of your music licensing course, and it's really, really good. Because I've oh, talked to you. a bunch of my other friends that are in that field. And as I start speaking, they, they're like, wait a minute. How do you know about this stuff? It's like it's like it was like a secret or something like that. And they're like, wait a minute, how did you learn that? And I'm like, well, just you know, I took this really cool course. You know, the funny thing is, is uh, is not not to spend any much time on on, on the course, but um, you know, I would go to events, I would speak at events, um, and and I would walk away from some of these events just really angry um, that <laughs> that I would get up there and I would try and teach as much as I could in the short amount of time. But then there'd be these other people like supervisors and, and, and whatnot, you know, heavy hitters in the music licensing space who would get up and, you know, all these people would be so excited about that one hour, you know, conference later in the evening with these people. And I'd go and I'd sit and I'd watch and they would never discuss how to do it. They would talk about why it's a great thing to get into, you know, obviously, you know, how profitable it can be and the opportunities that it provides independent musicians, but they would never teach the how. And I would be so frustrated because I think that these, and I, I knew the information, but I'd feel frustrated for the other people there because I'd be like, these people were so excited about this, but they didn't learn anything, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, and so I thought, you know, when I when I put the, together the program, I was like, you know, I approached it from the attitude of I'm going to, this is a one and done thing. This is not going to be one of those things where, you know, okay, now that you've done this program, now you get to buy this one to get it to another level. No, this is a one and done. <laughs> this is everything uh, that I know about licensing is everything you need to know about licensing, and and so that that was one of the things because it is it is pretty secretive, you know. And, and well, at and, its uh, core, what I what I loved about it is um, you, you've built it up the right way because you give the foundation and you show literally the steps that you need to take to prepare your music for to be presented. That right. I, I guess if I had to say it succinctly that's what it would be you've shown people how to prepare your music succinctly to show it to music supervisors or others in that space right yeah because so the first it can be question, considered the first question i always get is how do i how do i get my music you know how, who do i send my music to and the reality is i have to go that's a great question but that's the wrong first question that's much further down the line and and the way that i always try a good analogy that i give is like if you're 
if you're if you want to go to a Super Bowl party, you know, it's, it's Super Bowl Sunday and, and you have nothing to do, you know, and you don't have any friends. What do you do? Well, you drive around a neighborhood. This is how you can find the Super Bowl party, right? You can just drive around a neighborhood, find a house with a bunch of cars in front of it and then park your car and walk up and knock on the door. Well, if you do that, what's going to happen is you're going to knock on the door. The homeowner is going to open it up and and uh, hello. And you say, hi, I, I see you guys are having a Super Bowl party. Can I come join you? And they'll say, well, well, who are you? And be like, oh, I just saw you had a bunch of cars, and and I know that you probably have a bunch of food, and and I could I could really you know eat your food, and I could really go use your bathroom too, and <laughs> and of course they're going to close the door on you, right? And call nine one one. Yeah, like we got some nut jobs standing outside, and that's that's how most musicians approach licensing. Like like I know I can make money doing this, so I'm just going to blast my music out there, and of course then you know nothing ever happens. Well, that's like showing up knocking on a door for a Super Bowl party and being like, I really want to eat your food. And use your bathroom uh, and the door is going to close. But what you could do and the way that, that, that the doors actually do open for you is if you think ahead a little bit and you prepare, right? You got to build before you knock, so to speak. And if you put together a nice tray of like, you know, uh, like, you know, chips and hummus and guacamole or whatever. And then you have another, you know, tray that and you, you got a charcuterie board and you like, <laughs> check it out. Yeah. Right. You've got like your wings with your grandfather's, you know, recipe and, and maybe and some, some craft beer, craft beer. <laughs> but the thing is you knock and you show up there and the, the homeowner opens up, you're standing there with two arms full of food and, and beer Hey, listen! I saw you guys were having a Super Bowl party. I figured I'd you know whip up some wings and and uh, put together some you know chips and guacamole and 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 some beer and see if you guys wanted some. Well, the the homeowner is going to go, hey, everybody, look what the new guy brought, and everyone inside the party is going to go, hey, the new guy, and you're going to be welcomed with open arms because you're bringing value to that situation. And yeah. that's really what I'm showing in the licensing course. I'm showing you how to show up at a, to the party. Right, how to knock on those doors with everything you need to have them welcome you with open arms. And that really is the difference between the secret aspect of music licensing versus learning how to really successfully license your music and do it on a consistent basis. Because it's all about showing up and delivering value to your end users, which is no different than your job of being a music director and you know, providing incredible value to the artists that, that you work with. Yeah. I, I love that analogy. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, Kevin, I, I appreciate you uh, joining us on, on this episode. And uh, once again, so thankful that you're able to join us. No problem. Thank you for having me. And uh, everybody out there, please make sure that you subscribe to Michael's pages and check out his website. He's the truth. <laughs>